We're in Matthew 22. We are in the middle of a large confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. He's been telling them parable after parable. At one point he told them, the kingdom of God's going to be taken away from you. Pretty strong words to say to the most powerful people in your life. Or some of the most powerful people in your life. At the beginning of this chapter, which we went over last week, Jesus told an even more difficult parable to these leaders. And basically, he said, he gave them this message that they rejected him. He knew that they were going to kill him. And he was rejecting them. He said that not, now not only the kingdom of heaven is going to be taken away from you, but God's going to judge you. <clears throat> you look at verse 13, kind of the end of that parable. Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus actually talked more about hell than anyone else in the Bible, than any other place in the Bible. He said he talked about it as a real place, a place of God's judgment, and a place that God doesn't want anyone to be in. He's made a way for our rescue, but he talked about it more than anyone else. So what has happened is, at this point, in this, show, in this you know, conflict, uh, the Pharisees have rejected Jesus, and now Jesus has rejected them. He said, you're not going to continue in, in power. And so what happens in the rest of this chapter, I would, I'm just calling it the public showdown. A showdown happens between the Pharisees and Jesus. How are they going to get rid of him? He is wildly popular, but they desperately want to get rid of him and silence him. How in the world are they going to? To do it. So before we pray and dive in, just one other thought, one question I'd like you to have in the back of your mind. Where are you at with all of this? Uh, what have you decided? Who is Jesus? Is he the Son of God, the Son of God as he claimed to be? Or is he just some liar who claimed to be the Son of God? like the Pharisees are saying that he is. Who is he? I believe this decision is the most important decision of your life. It will determine how you live your life, and it will determine your eternity. So just consider it. There's so much, so much, many powerful lessons for us in this chapter. I'm almost sad that we're going through it so quickly. But there are major things in this chapter for you to take away from here today and live your life by. Please pray with me before we dive in. Lord God, we just need you here today. Uh, Father, you know I am not adequate for this. Lord, we need to hear from you. Each person in this room needs you in major, desperate ways. We need you, Lord. You, I believe with all my heart, are the answer to life. And so, dear God, I just pray that you will speak into each life this morning, including my own, what we need to hear. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.
All right. Verse 15, start with me there. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. They've got to get rid of him. How are we going to trap him? They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Okay, so these two groups do not usually work together. Okay, the Pharisees and the Herodians could not get along. As you can tell from their name, the Herodians are the folks who support Herod. And Herod supported the Roman government. He was put in power by the Roman government, and he, he maintained his power by the Roman government. And most of the Jews hated the Roman government. They hated Roman taxes. So it was extremely rare for these two groups to work together, but they've just decided they're desperate. They've got to figure out how to get rid of Jesus. So they go there together, and they have a question. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Can you just hear the hypocrisy? Here they are trying to destroy him, and yet they've got all these flowery, beautiful words about what a wonderful person that he is, that they're uh, promoting to the crowd. But anyhow, they go on with their question. He said, they say, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now you might think, how in the world would this trap Jesus? Why would an answer to this question do any good for them? It's because no matter, they think, no matter what Jesus says, he's in trouble. If he says, yes, it's fine, you should support Caesar, then all of those who hate Rome, Roman government, Roman taxes, are instantly going to be against Jesus. But if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar then they will point him out to the Romans as an insurrectionist. And they'll get the Romans on his tail, and they'll get rid of him that way. So what's his answer? Verse 18, But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. He said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went away. So they had to go regroup, because Jesus blew them away with his answer. They did not expect that answer. From him. <clears throat> and there's a lot more there than you might realize. I'd just like you to think about that with me for a moment because Jesus is giving us the beginning of the answer to how we are called by God to respond to our government. What does he mean? He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. If you would turn with me uh, to Romans chapter 3. 13. Very important question. How are we supposed to relate to our government? I know there are many times that I'm not that happy with our government. <laughs> so, 
This question comes up in my mind a lot. Romans chapter 13. I just want to talk our way through part of this chapter this morning uh, because this elaborates on what Jesus is talking about there. Verse 1, Paul writes, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So you notice several things there. One is, we're supposed to obey the government. And the, two, and the second is, we obey it because God put it there. God put it in place. He goes on to explain further in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So God put governments in place to subdue evil. He goes on in verse 4. It's a minister of God to you for good. If you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So the government has that authority, and that authority comes from God. Think back to Genesis real quickly with me. Right after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, it's a very short one to two chapters before the whole world is so filled with violence and wickedness that God says, I've got to destroy the earth. And he brings a, a major flood. And after that flood, he has rescued Noah and his family. God talks about human government. He institutes government to hold down evil. And so our government is in place with authority from God for that very purpose. Keep going in verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. In other words, it should prick my conscience if I disobey the government. Because the government's authority comes from God. Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Now these next verses sound almost exactly what Jesus said. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes do, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. So God's the one who put government in place. As much as I complain about it sometimes, God's the one who put it in place, and there's a very strong purpose for it. But there's also another side to this picture that we have to understand. And that is, the government is supposed to realize that they're under God's authority. And when they tell us to do something that would cause us to disobey God, 
then they are out of line. In other words, since the government's authority comes from God, He is the highest authority. He is our first authority. So if the government tells us to do something that would cause us to disobey God, or if the government tells us to do something that would keep us from obeying God, I know there's a fine line there. But those things would mean I shouldn't obey the government. And we're not going to take the time to go and read through it all, but let me just share one verse with you. This happened in Acts chapter 4. The apostles are out preaching, and uh, a crowd gathers, and a lot of people believe in the Lord, and the very same Pharisees probably that Jesus is having a conflict right here in Matthew chapter 22. They are all upset because they're teaching in the name of Jesus, and they come and they arrest these men, and they have them flogged, and they command them not to teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And here's what they answer. Peter and John answer them in Acts chapter 4 with these words. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So the first commandment, or the first priority is God's our authority. The second priority is the government's our authority. And if they get out of line, we're supposed to go with what the Lord's told us. It it will take courage for us to do that. In many countries, it could be a death sentence. But strong Christians are, are living up to their calling in a lot of places, even in our day. So this is just um, a great thing to equip us to know what God wants from us. Going back to Matthew chapter 22, though, the Pharisees come up with another question. They have gone away. They have regrouped after Jesus blew them away with his answer. And so verse 23, they send in the Sadducees. Okay, first it was their disciples and the Herodians. Now they send in the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees also did not work well with the Pharisees because the Sadducees were the liberal group. Okay, we have the liberal groups in our day. They were the, I only believe it if I can see it with my eyes and touch it with my hands, etc. So they did not believe in the resurrection. On that same day, Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus questioning him. Asking, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children and his brother uh, has no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Okay, so this was God's directive, God's command in the Old Testament. If a woman's husband died, she would go to his brother and that way their family name was preserved, and their livelihood and their property was all preserved. Okay, that was prescribed in the Old Testament. So they go on in verse 25. Now there were seven brothers with us. The first one married and died. Having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, 
whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. So you get the picture. Each of these seven brothers marries this same woman. And none of them have children. And then the woman dies. And so they say, Who's, whose wife is she in the resurrection? Evidently, they, the idea was, it doesn't make any sense. She can't be married to them all in the resurrection. So there must be no resurrection. Why would this get Jesus in trouble? Well, similar to the first question, there were many Jewish people who believed in the resurrection and many who did not. So his answer, they felt like, could put him on the hot seat. Well, here's his response. And I think we can just learn so much from this. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. So keep that in mind. He's pointing out two problems that they have, which is why they're so mistaken. One, they don't understand the Scriptures. They don't understand the Bible And number two, they do not understand the power of God. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus is just saying, marriage is not a thing in heaven. We're going to all know one another. We're going to walk into eternity together as I love to picture. But we will no longer be married in heaven. It's just going to be a new day, a different day. We're going to be so united. We're going to be married to the Lord, first and foremost. He's going to be our first love. But I just um, can't get over the next things that Jesus says here. Because he goes on to answer their question about the resurrection that they didn't ask him directly. He says, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And now he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, verse 33, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. What did Jesus just say to them? Those words were spoken to Moses. Okay, so if you remember the story, Moses out in the wilderness, the bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. Moses approaches the bush, and God speaks to him from the bush. And he says, don't come near here. Take your shoes off your feet. You're standing on holy ground. And he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Well, at this point in history, we're 400 years beyond Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's saying, I'm I'm their God. And And so Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so, incredibly... Jesus uses the verb tense of one word to destroy all their feelings about there being no resurrection. Because the Old Testament says, I am the God, not I was, 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I just, it's just so moving to me that the, the Bible is that reliable for us. That we trust what the Bible says to us. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, because they didn't have any clue what to say, they gathered themselves together. So now they're regrouping again. Now they're coming up with their next question for the showdown. I'd just like you to stop there for just one moment, though, and just think about how, how Jesus said, how did he put it exactly? You're greatly mistaken. You didn't understand the Scriptures or the power of God. And so just thinking, these are two strongholds, two rocks for our lives. That we have the scriptures. And we have great access to them. You can pull this Bible out, right? Here in America still, in your home every single day. And get ammunition and strength and guidance for your day. And the power of God in our lives. He is not some... Slippery feeling out there. The God of glory made heaven and earth. And He is our future. So we can strive to understand both the scriptures and the power of God. And have our lives changed by it. Have our lives changed by it. You know, I think about Psalm 46. I just, I'm not going to turn there. But just think about the first verse or two with me. See, how does it start? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. And, and that, that chapter goes on and on to talk about how God will be exalted in the earth. And it talks about how God is with us. So if we believe the scripture and we believe the power of God, it's life-changing for us. It's, it is our life. But they come up with another question. So, so he, he did, did away with the Herodians and their disciples. He now did away with the Sadducees. So now the Pharisees themselves come and they put forward actually a pretty good question. Verse 35. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So evidently, they thought this was a pretty hard question. They had researched it. They had been through every single verse in the Old Testament, and they'd come up with 613 commandments, is what they said. And evidently, they'd been prioritizing them, trying to figure out which one's the most important. I mean, God said them all, right? So which one is the most important? Jesus does not have any problem with their question and answers them immediately. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, if you were really paying attention, you'll notice that we, when we looked at that chart this morning, and we talked about our relationship with God and our relationship with one another, Jesus just encapsulated those things here for us. The greatest commandment is loving God. All your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he gives them a bonus point, right? They just asked him for the greatest commandment. He says, here's number two, the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on to explain, not only are these the two greatest commandments, but in verse 40 he says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And from other places in the New Testament, we understand exactly what Jesus means there. He's saying, if you truly love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and live it out, and you truly love your neighbor as yourself, and you live it out, you will automatically fulfill all of the commandments of the Old Testament. So he not only told them what was the greatest commandment, but he told them how to fulfill them all, and boiled it down into something that's, again, so powerful in our lives. Just we can take this with us and know how to live life on a daily basis. So you just have to love it. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Uh, Just thinking about that last one. Think about it with me for a moment. This This should be who we are, right? It's like the uniform we wear. I like to think about that. I worked uh, as a mechanic for about 20 years. And so uh, 10 of those years, I worked for a company called Herb Gordon Dodd. So I had a uniform, dark gray pants, light gray shirt, name on this side, and on this side, a little tag that said Herb Gordon Dodge. Well, as a Christian, the uniform that we wear is love, loving God, and loving people. It's like the ring on your, your finger. It's the wedding ring on your finger. You belong to the King of Kings. It's like in Isaiah. In the Old Testament, it says there's coming a day when many people are going to write on their hand, belonging to the Lord. This is who you and I are. When you hang out with somebody and they go home at night and they're talking about you behind your back. This is what they should be saying. Man, I've never seen that so incredible. The way he, she loves people, cares about people, loves God and tries to honor God. This is who we are. It's who God has called us to be. So go on with me to the last little section here. In this last section, Jesus decides, hey, it's my turn. I get to ask a question. That's fair play, right? If you're having a public showdown and these people are, you know, popping all these questions at you and putting you on the spot, you get to ask one too, right? So that's what Jesus does. Verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, they think this is an easy question. They immediately pop off the answer. 
they say to him, the son of David. And that's true, right? That's what we've been noticing as we've been going through. Uh, the very last chapter, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem for the last time on that donkey, and the crowds are going, Hosanna to the son of David. They're saying, the Messiah is here. The Messiah has come. So whose son is he? Jesus says, they say, the son of David. He says, all right, I've got a follow-up question for you. Verse 43, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, quote, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? You see, in, in Hebrew culture, authority, parenting was everything. A father would never call his son Lord, or his grandson, or his grandson's grandson. Never. They, the, the parents, the grandparents, they were greatly and highly respected. That would never happen. And yet here David is speaking about his own son, calling him Lord. And Jesus is saying, what's up with that? And the obvious answer is that the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, not only as the Messiah, but as a divine Messiah, as the Son of God, as Jesus is claiming to be, and they are so getting ready to crucify Him for. That, you know that's why they crucify Him. Because He will not come off of that statement that He is the Son of God. And in the end, they, the high priest, they can't find enough witnesses. We're getting there, but they can't find enough witnesses to convict Him. And so He says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Son of God. He says he is. And that's what this is pointing to. That's what Jesus is pointing them to early, early on. He's a divine Messiah. He is God come to earth. You know, the Pharisees should not have missed that. We take so simple, really. Isaiah 9.6. I don't know that I can quote it perfectly. But Isaiah 9.6. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government will rest upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. They should not have missed it. And it's because they missed it that they crucified him. Because they missed it and they were wanting to maintain their own authority. But they did miss it. So, very last verse. No one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Showdown was over. Jesus came out victorious. So just take those four main thoughts with you today uh, in addition to this question. Who is he? Have you determined 
Who is Jesus Christ? Is he the son of God who he claimed to be? But the four ideas are how to relate to our government. God is our highest priority. Government is number two. The truth of the resurrection. This life is not the goal. We are all one day going to die. But it's not the goal. Keep in mind the great commandments. This will keep your life in order. Number one, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And number four, the Messiah is God's son. The son of God. God himself laid aside his glory and came to earth for us. I want to read you a little story just because I love the way uh, this pastor put this. This is something that he said that, of course, comes out of some of the things we've been talking about this morning. So, it's short. Thinking of the fullness and duration of this wonderful life, W.B. Henson, a great preacher of a past generation, spoke from his own experience just before he died. He said, I remember a year ago when a doctor told me, you have an illness from which you won't recover. I walked out to where I live, five miles from Portland, Oregon, and I looked across at that mountain that I love. I looked at the river in which I rejoice. I looked at the stately trees that are always God's own poetry to my soul. Then in the evening, I looked up into the great sky where God was lighting his lamps. And I said, I may not see you many more times, but mountain, I shall be alive when you are gone. And river, I shall be alive when you cease running to the sea. And stars, I shall be alive when you have fallen from your sockets in the great pulling down of the material universe. You are an eternal being. And what you do with the Savior, with the Lord Jesus Christ, is of eternal significance. Invite Him into your life. Ask Him to forgive your sins and be your Savior. I beg you to do so. And if you do so, I hope that you'll tell me. uh, Because I have some things for you. I'd like to pray with you. God's got a challenging journey ahead for anyone who does that, but an amazing journey ahead for everyone who does that. Please pray together with me, um, and then we have a final song we're going to conclude with. Lord God, I just thank you again for your mighty word today. Thank you, Lord, that you came to the earth and that you faced your opposition with courage and boldness and wisdom. In the power of the Spirit of God, Lord, you answered questions. But more than that, Lord, you went and laid down your life to pay for our sins so we can be forgiven. Lord, help us to give our lives to you, I pray. I do pray that if there's anyone listening to this message, whether they're here today or online or wherever, Uh, that they will give their life to you, Lord. And we just thank you for your love and your grace. 
And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.